Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This week is about Bitcoin and one of the biggest threats, in my view, to the integrity of the Bitcoin blockchain and coding generally, the case of Tulip Trading recently in the Court of Appeal, in which claimant seeks to transfer his Bitcoin without a private key, looking for the blockchain software developers to transfer them for him. It's worth considering whether what Tulip Trading and the claimant and its boss Craig Wright is claiming can be done at a technical level, and if so, should it be done? and what effect it may have on the entire infrastructure of blockchain technology. This week, I am glad to be joined by Nick Smart, an Associate Director for Blockchain Intelligence at Crystal Blockchain Analytics, which provides software for investigators to review blockchains and key data to consider the movement of funds. He's here to give his thoughts on the claim from a technical perspective and to consider what could actually happen if the claimant were to win. We are here to discuss not the law, but the facts and provide our own independent thoughts and opinions. Nick, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? No, not so thanks, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. No, thank you for joining from Dubai. You're in Dubai currently, right? I am, yes. Uh, enjoying the last throes of the winter weather before it gets really hot. What is the winter weather like in Dubai? Is it, it's probably London in the summer, right? It's beautiful. It's really nice out here. Uh, you know, you can go out, you can barbecue, you can walk along the beach. Uh, but as soon as the heat hits, you are kind of confined to air conditioning. Okay, well, enjoy while you can. Um, I, th I think... Let's start with Bitcoin and some of the fundamentals um, for those who aren't too familiar with Bitcoin. Uh, I think it's useful to go over some basic principles. So just very briefly, what is Bitcoin and why do people like it? Okay, so uh, Bitcoin is a digital form of currency that is secured by a particularly uh, intelligent way of cryptography. Um, there are lots of reasons why people like it. There are lots of economic arguments that people have made, both for and against Bitcoin as a protocol. But generally speaking, it's a form of peer-to-peer uh, -peer digital cash, which you can send directly to another person without having to use an intermediate institution. So you don't rely on a bank or uh, a card processing company. You can just send it directly from you know Nick to Matt and Matt to Nick. It's without having to involve any third party, which is really nice. Yeah, makes it a little bit more straightforward than having to rely on a bank. And I, I think it's worth going over that because the case that we're discussing or the facts of the case that we're discussing, to some extent, rely on um, proof of work. So just very briefly, could you tell us what proof of work is and how it operates on the Bitcoin blockchain? Okay, so proof of work is a way of securing that network. If we go back to, for example, of sending the money between us, there needs to be some way of confirming that Nick sent money to Matt. And proof of work is one way of confirming that, that actually happened um, and securing the network. In proof of work, um, the set of computers called miners race to solve a difficult mathematical problem, um, which is the work. And the first miner to win gets to add a new block of transactions and say, OK, this is the correct version of events because I won the race. Uh, and also then gets a reward for doing that in the form of whatever the cryptocurrency might be. Um, it helps to keep the, the network safe and secure. Uh, because it's really hard to add a new block to the chain. Like the math problem is really difficult and the difficulty is adjusted based on the number of computers involved in it. And in order to attack the network, as in shut it down and make it a mess, you need to have consensus. You need to have more than 50% of the computers. Now, if there are five computers on a network, then you only need, you know, three to make the difference, right? You can, or right, you can right. turn up with six and you win. Whereas with the Bitcoin network as it is now we're talking many thousands of computers and you know in terms of the cost it will financially set you back to buy that much computing power um you can't do it easily so it wouldn't be worth your effort to try and win in in that case as an individual attacker let's say okay and i think it's worth um on that basis then moving to to some of the uh, facts of this case and as I say, today is not necessarily about considering the law of this case. It's it's considering the, the sort of facts and whether the claimant um, whether the claimant's case could go ahead on on the basis of the facts. Um, so just tell me very briefly who is the claimant and what is he? What's his claim? 
Okay, so uh, the claimant uh, is Dr. Craig Wright, who is an Australian computer scientist and businessman who claims to be the founder of the most popular cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Um, you know, within the cryptocurrency sort of like social community, he is very much a diversive figure. Um, his opposition is incredibly vocal. Um, and they have made some really, you know, big allegations against him. They've called him a scammer. They've called him a fraud, and he's taken them to court uh, for libel cases for that. Um, I think one of the questions that I get asked sometimes is, "Is he Satoshi?" Um, and well, that's where he claims to be, right? That's who he says he is. Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, you know, like it's. It, I the, the reality is nobody knows. Like Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym, and nobody can know. You know, for a hundred percent certain. Um, who it is without proof. And, you know, uh, Dr. Wright has been at pains many times to try and prove himself to be this individual. Like he's gone to court, it's been tried several times, but not really concluded in a meaningful way, I don't think, yeah. yet. Um, but there is a different thing, like, you know, could he be one of the group who were Satoshi Nakamoto? Like, you know, if Satoshi was a group of coders that made this, could he be one of the group? Well, I think possibly he was around could he be an early adopter of the technology he also definitely could be an early adopter um which i think is more likely to be the case um it, but one of the big contentious points around him um lots of accusations get put towards him uh, yeah. by his detractors that he's you know he's not intelligent he's a very clever man you know uh, yeah. and we can't take that away from him so he's, he's quite a controversial figure um but that doesn't stop him from being i suppose in this community quite an important uh, or at least sort of leading figure um I, I think it's down to the expression of what's important in the community now yeah. i think um you know cryptocurrency in 2012 2013 was just bitcoin with a capital b and not a lot of other things mm -hmm. Uh, we're now, you know, 10 years later, and although it's still the largest uh, and most valuable cryptocurrency uh, by any stretch, mm. and the one we all know as a household name, might not be the most important anymore. And its creator outside the confines of this case might not really matter that much anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, so he, it's interesting. He, he's the claimant in as much as he's the sort of person behind the claimant entity, which is Tulip Trading. Um, what does um, what does he say about networks? What's this all about? What's the actual claim? What is he claiming is the problem? Um, and what can he say can be done? Okay, uh, I'll have to try and screw on my legal head now and understand what he he talks about. So, well, let's go through it point by point because it's about networks, isn't it? He says that it's about to some extent how he created a network and then there were further networks. And if we talk about that and then we can go through, I think um, some of the things he talks about with hacks and, and I mean, I, I've certainly got the judgment in front of me, the first instance judgment. So we can always talk about it together. Yeah, that'd be really helpful, Matt, because I tried to remember it. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think anybody's uh, expecting anybody to remember a judgment in full, uh, but there is, I, so uh, it's reference to the uh, the first instance, uh, first instance judgment. Um, at paragraph three, it's about there being different kinds of networks, and he's essentially saying that he he or Tulip Trading created uh, the first network of this kind, and that others therefore copied him. And there's other separate proceedings um, around copyright infringement around um, whether that network and the code was copied. Um, but ultimately, uh, he says that he was or Tulip at least owns. Um, a vast swathe of uh, uh, Bitcoin, and uh, that there was a hack. Um, and I wonder whether, Nick, you can talk to me, uh, talk through what had actually happened in terms of that hack. Okay, so there are two accounts of the hack. There's one in the judgment, and there's one that's been produced on uh, a few media websites and what he suggested happened. Um, okay. I think, first of all, we need to sort of understand, at least in my mind, why the case is being considered. Um, the assets he's talking about are in the value of around three billion pounds. So it's yeah. not a small sum of money. And I think that's a big weighting factor in you know, this case itself. Um, so basically, there are two Bitcoin addresses which apparently belong to or under the control of this company, Tulip Trading, which is uh, part of a corporate structure, which ultimately he has some relationship to. Um, and what he has claimed in terms of the hack was 
that the private key, so uh, if you're not familiar what a private key is, for the benefit of everyone who isn't, a private key is uh, a, a, an artifact that allows you to release funds or approve a transaction on the blockchain. But that's basically what it is. So control of a private key allows you to spend the money that's held within a Bitcoin account. It doesn't give you can doesn't give you the Bitcoins because no one really owns them. You just get control of them with the private key, if that makes sense. So private keys uh, allow uh, an individual to uh, withdraw their funds. That's right. Yeah, basically, it's um, they're used to securely sign transactions and then provide proof of ownership for an address. So it allows you to spend the bitcoins that you have in your wallet. That's what a private key is. A long randomly generated string of characters that encrypt and decrypt um, data in public key cryptography. That's what a private key is. So the control of these particular private keys, um, which uh, Dr. Wright has uh, said were stolen from him, um, would allow somebody to spend the money that's contained within the two addresses mentioned in the judgment. Um, right. And so I think we just want to set up like they yeah. have private keys and they were stolen, right? That's the first part. Um, how they were stolen or how they're protected is also quite significant to this because we get a fair amount of description about how it was yeah. controlled. Um, right. the, the, the claimant says that they were held in encrypted files which were then further contained in a password protected file on the computer in his home office. Um, and the password was kept in a digital password safe. They were synced remotely with two different cloud services and the mm -hmm. ability to put a password in was also protected further um, to make it more difficult for an attacker to try and do this, which you know, it seems like a very reasonable set of precautions around something that holds such a large amount of money. Um, and he also kept notes on how to regain access. Um, so we set up the idea that he has you know, some defenses around these items, yep. which are worth a lot of money. Um, he then said that he discovered the hack when transactions on a different wallet, unrelated to the one that um, was alleged in the hack, uh, had been conducting, resulting in an actual theft of 1.1 million pounds. And as part of his investigation, Dr. Wright has a pedigree in cybersecurity. You know, he has founded mm -hmm. companies that do that. Um, he noted that the attacker erased system logs, uh, but also crucially, he'd taken the files containing the private key and the password safe data, along with some of his own personal research work. Um, and as a result of the synchronization with the cloud, um, there was no uh, versions there available for him to sort of like recover the money and keep it safe because they'd synchronized and deleted the changes. Um, he goes on to say that he told the police um, and that the police are investigating it at the moment. Uh, in media articles, he said that he discovered a rogue, uh, unknown to him, wireless router in his house, uh, which he think might have been left there by the attackers to sort of like do some kind of uh, subterfuge there. Um, but what I found interesting was his, his response to the incident, um, mm -hmm. which was to wipe the hard drives um, that were used in the attack. Now, I agree with him insofar as it's a fairly standard thing to do after attack. But normally, at least in my experience, um, the process would have been, particularly in a large theft like this, would be to take an image, a digital copy of the hard drives, and to do some sort of digital forensics to try and preserve evidence and find out um, you know, who did this and how did they get in in the first place, just to make sure that they don't get in again. Is it a matter then, and I, I think there's two points from this. Number one, there seems to have been a hack, or at least there's an alleged hack, which has deprived him not only of the assets, the Bitcoin that he had, but also of the private keys or access to the private keys, which means that essentially he is unable to uh, recover his funds in that respect. My understanding is as well that the hackers because the private keys or access to the private keys are encrypted, they also can't move any of those funds. And therefore, it's sort of stuck in this, uh, in this address where it, it's completely inaccessible. Point one, is that, is that right? I mean, yes and no. If the hackers get through his defences, like let's say they find a way through, like through what sort of techniques they've already worked out how to get through his thing, you know, if they've... His encryption, right? His encryption to access to the private keys. Right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. encryption is very good, but it's not always foolproof. It does have sometimes have mm. problems. If they get through it, then they're able to recover it. And Dr. Wright even goes on to say he's not sure why they haven't, if they had access, why they haven't moved it yet. You know, why are they waiting? 
is it too obvious if they do something? There's lots of question marks he's said about why that might be the case. Yeah, I mean, for litigators like myself who uh, spend their day job tracing assets and, and seeking to recover them for people, um, it's an obvious one. And maybe he's right in saying that the reason they haven't moved it is because it's just too obvious. You'd be able to see it, um, yeah. move on the blockchain and, 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 and deal with it in the normal way. Yeah. So I guess number one is, is if they cannot get through the encryption, then his assets have been removed and his private keys will not allow anyone or the uh, inability to access his private keys means that no one will be able to move them. And I guess yeah. point two from what you were saying seems to be that it is possibly odd that the hard drives were wiped. Um, and do you think that maybe helps his case, hinders his case? It creates a, an image in people's mind of, of something or not? Maybe it's just circumstantial. I think the trouble is here is you know, we're all guilty of having an unthinking moment and like taking actions faster than we do. And hindsight's a beautiful thing. I think in terms of mm. his case there, um, it doesn't help him because if he'd preserved the evidence, if he'd been able to show conclusively that they, mm. he was stolen from and you can, tr and you know, I had this stuff and someone broke in and they stole my things and here's all the evidence of mm -hmm. the intrusion that took place. And you know, it was by a you know a forensics firm that you know he could probably afford to have come in and check out for him. Um, you know, again commenting on his financial status, but I mean, yeah, um, an independent of him too as well to come in and check that. Um, you know, that would have helped him a lot much more, and certainly would have helped him convince you know his skeptics. Uh, I think yeah. anyway. I mean, does the whole case rest on um, him? showing if he's been hacked or not. No, the case really, I think, rests on, can he prove that he had control over these assets at any point in time? Um, Absolutely, that's one question. And also depending on whether what he is asking the court to do, and therefore the developers to do, whether that can even be done and what implications it has. And that sort of neatly brings us to the next point, which is what does he want developers to, to do? because it's all about a patch. He, he talks about paragraph six. I mean, it says here, uh, the case that uh, would, he, he essentially says uh, that it would not be technically difficult to write and implement a software patch enabling him or Tulip Trading Limited to regain control of the assets. So what is it in, in, in your perspective that he's seeking um, from the developers in the call? Okay, so there is a precedent in cryptocurrency, if not law about this. So, yeah. Um, in 2016, the Ethereum DAO was hacked and um, lots of money Ethereum was stolen. And uh, basically the developers of Ethereum united and said, we're going to apply a patch which reverses the change that, of the money that was stolen. Um, so even now to this day, there is still an Ethereum blockchain in existence that shows when money was stolen in, in a particular attack along in 2016. So what he's asking for is you know, and I'm not a coder directly myself, I'm not a blockchain developer, so I'm going to be really mm -hmm. careful. But generally speaking, what he's asking for isn't beyond the realms of impossible. Like you can ask for a software patch to do this because there is a precedent in technology, like it's happened before. Um, the difference is that um, the patch depends on consensus. And if we go back to what I explained at the start about you need to control more than 50% of the mm -hmm. mining capacity or the hash rate, we call it, uh, in order to affect you know, your copy or your version of the blockchain. Um, I don't know how the development com community would feel about having to apply a patch across all mining things. And, you know, it, it depends really on them being compelled to do so, which I think is, you know, why he's listed the 12 particular defendants is, you know, you will make a patch and this will be applied and we will just go get ahead with it and go on. Um, I do wonder how enforceable that would be internationally. Yeah, and I think that's that's the point. We'll come on to uh, in more detail about exactly in what he wants them to do. But I think um, that was nicely explained. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't know about the, uh, the, the DAO hack and the patch that had been put together. And I wonder whether he's lawyers should be relying on that. It's, it's probably in a completely different jurisdiction. It doesn't sort of ring bells with me in, in the UK. I'll be honest with you. Um, it's still a hugely contested topic um, amongst people to this day, like whether or not it should have been allowed. Um, at the time, it was, 
I sometimes feel that cryptocurrency or crypto assets generally have this idea of financial Darwinism, which is, mm. you know, and a lot of the critics of cryptocurrency, and I can name but a few, but a lot of them do say, you know, well, if you lose your money to a, a hack or a scam, well, you just weren't cut out for this life in the first place, which is lovely. But also, you know, what if it's your fund manager with your pension? Uh, I think you might have mm -hmm. a different opinion when it's, you know, directly impacting your life. And again, their argument will be, well, you know, I would never trust a fund manager in the first place. And so you can get off on that tangent very quickly here. <laughs> yeah, that's not that helpful in that in that respect. No, it's not at all. And, you know, it's still something that's hotly contested by people. They still think that, you know, these kind of specific hard forks, um, we would call them a hard fork being where a new blockchain is wrote um, in parallel to the old one. So it's not, a, it's not an incremental upgrade. It's actually a complete change in direction um mm -hmm. you know in terms of the technology and it's happened before right hard forks have happened before um particularly on the bitcoin network the first uh, hard fork was from bitcoin into bitcoin cash then bitcoin mm -hmm. cash flipped into bitcoin cash and bitcoin satoshi vision which is the one that uh, dr wright is a, a champion of and claims yeah. the the true version of bitcoin as how it should be and they all argue on different ways of the standard like some of them think that the size of the block, so the block is the record of transactions that gets added to, to the chain of other blocks. Um, some think they should be unlimited in size. That's uh, Dr. Wright's company. He wants like massive blocks so you can handle huge amounts of data. And others say that's not right. We want to do small blocks or only marginally small blocks because we think this is the way of going forward. Um, and it really points to like the idea of the governance here and who's you know, who thinks they have the better technology in, in, in to implement this. Um, I guess the issue more broadly is, you know, if this was to happen, it's kind of against the core of, well, I wouldn't say it's against the core of the values. That's not correct, because I think deep down, if anybody is a victim of crime, they want a policeman. Do you know what I mean? They want to have justice. Of course, yeah. And I think also for the industry, as it rapidly matures in the wake of ongoing scandals elsewhere, it's really important that, you know, we do think about consumer protection and we do think about, you know, uh, you know, if you want your product to be taken seriously and you want it to be, you know, the future of currency and everything else, you, you do need to think about these things. You can't just have that, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the, the harsh parenting kind of style. You, you need to think, okay, well, if someone has lots of money stolen, we need to be able to get their money back for them. And I guess the question is, is, is this the way to do it? Um, and I guess because of who he is and his position, he's able to test this in the courts. But I just want to, I want to sort of refer to a conversation we actually had uh, prior to this recording. We were sort of flicking articles back and forth to each other. And uh, there was one by uh, someone called Paul Kiernan um, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, there was an, an article, 16th of February, 2023. It was called Bitcoin's future depends on a handful of mysterious coders. And I'm going to quote from it. Uh, he notes, known as maintainers, coders serve as stewards of Bitcoin Core, an open program that keeps the cryptocurrency's digital ledger up to date with thousands of computers that make its network. And then he later says, Bitcoin's current worth and future depend uh, potential rest partly in the hands of Bitcoin core maintainers, a group who are chosen by their peers and often vague about their whereabouts. A loose network of donors pay most maintainers salaries. At least once, the maintainers secretly patched a bug that Bitcoin proponents say could have destroyed the cryptocurrency's value. Aided by a broader community of developers, the maintainers, successor of Bitcoin's mysterious creator known only by pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, must ensure that the software remains compatible with the latest versions of operating systems like Windows or Mac OS and that it keeps up transaction volumes. So is that your understanding of how this all works and does it fall in line with, with the claimant's proposition? Um... Uh, yes, it does, really. That's how I understand it to work. Um, I don't know how much it falls into the claimant's view. I think he, and you know, like one of the things I will say about Dr. Wright specifically is, is that, you know, it, you like him or not, but it, it doesn't really matter. What Sometimes he says things that make sense. Like, mm -hmm. and when he talks about, you know, um, this idea that, uh, cryptocurrency is not anonymous and you know, what kind of cryptocurrency do you really want? This idea that, as you said, the description of these people are like shadowy, elusive and, you know, mm -hmm. people behind the scenes. 
And, you know, he says, well, who do you really want to be running your money? Do you want a group of people who you never know um, and have no claim against and can do nothing to if they wrong you? Like, do these do these people really deserve to be, you know, running the future of money, if that's what it is? And so he I, wants, I guess, more more open sort of, I guess, uh, an, uh, an understanding of who is maintaining um, the, the network. But I, I think mainly this, this section, what stuck out for me was that it says the maintainers secretly patched a bug that Bitcoin proponents say could have destroyed the cryptocurrency's value. So if that is the case, if, if, if a bug can be sort of patched like that, and I think he uses the term patch or the, the term patch is used in the judgment, and you're saying that there was sort of this idea that uh, the DAO um, in 2016, uh, one of the DAOs was uh, patched in the same way, then is what he's proposing particularly radical? Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess not in terms of that respect. You know, it's not mm. at all. Um, but there is a different side to this, which is the the core people who do Bitcoin, like the developers and everything else, um, them feeling the heat of the law and being mm. compelled to act in a certain way because of fear of reprisal, um, you know, and not imprisonment, but, you know, personal mm -hmm. wealth, um, particularly. I feel like these, you know, it, it's almost like, you know, if, if somebody does comes around to your house to, you know, you've got a friend who's a plumber and he comes around to your house to fix his sink for you. And then, you know, you discover three weeks later that the, the leak has been spread throughout the house. You know, do you necessarily take him to court and say that you've caused property yeah. damage and you owe me money for what you've done? Or do you try and resolve it between you? And I guess in Dr. Wright's case, he thinks, well, that discussion point will never happen because he's such a divisive figure that his only opportunity to do that is to go to the law. It seems to me as though it, potentially these sort of things can be done. His proposition is that it, it could be done. Um, it's just whether it should be done because um, it seems as though a patch can, just referring back to that, um, that article, um, patches can be made, but if they're not or, or they're made in a certain way, then the value of the crypto asset could tumble or or be changed in a particular way. So I guess, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this. It's, it's sort of a question for, for just generally us to sort of put back and forth. But my feeling is that it can be done, but maybe it just shouldn't be done. And I agree. And I think the other side as well is that right now that money sat in those two addresses under control of private keys, of which there were two wallet.dat files he mentioned. Um, they're worth around three billion pounds. I think that's a current market valuation, let's say. Um, if this was to happen, they may have a significantly lower value um, mm. because of the actual activity of this. Because, you know, the guiding, you know, there's this idea of like, you know, what does Satoshi want? And I think one of the problems with having like an anonymous creator is, and again, <laughs> that's also assuming that it's not Dr. Wright as well, that particular remark. Um, but as the idea of there being an anonymous person is you can sort of make out whatever you want from what he is, like what kind of character it was. And for some people, he's this arch libertarian person who who mm. wants complete and utter freedom of all regulation and rules. And, you know, the financial Darwinism is perfectly appropriate because, you know, you were never clever enough to have your own money in the first place. So, you know, you're on your own there, pal. Um, and, you know, they all take what they want from him. But I do think a lot of the developer, the core developers, the people who really believe in this project would be, I don't necessarily think it, be, it wouldn't, I don't know how it would feel about their personal principles, but I think the fact if it came from a judgment, if it came from the law, if it was imposed on them, it's very different than them wanting to do it you know, out of their good thing. And I think also it's, it's against an individual rather than, um, you know, a group of people. So, you know, famously, Mt. Gox was hacked, the uh, cryptocurrency oh. exchange. Um, you know, FTX um, has had all kinds of, you know, ongoing leaks. Claiming to be hacked. Yeah, claiming yeah, to mean, be hacked. Yeah, so, again, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, if the developers were going to help anybody, would they help the many or would they help the few? And I think that's a fundamental legal point, which is interesting, uh, but potentially a moral point as well. I think it's worth us digging a little deeper into what the sort of technicalities of what he wants 
um, the developers to do. And then we'll sort of reverse it and have a look at what the developers are saying. So um, in terms of uh, the actual judgment, uh, paragraph 21, I'll just read it out. Paragraph 21 of the judgment notes, Dr. Wright maintains that it is not technically difficult for a, a patch to the computer code that operates the relevant network to be developed, which would have the effect of transferring the digital assets to which access has been lost to a new address. That new address would have a new private key, which the rightful owner could then use to regain access to their digital assets and a public key. Tulip Trading Limited claims, alternatively, that the patch the developers could provide could ensure that Tulip Trading Limited regains control of the assets in their existing locations, which I assume would involve allocating replacement private keys to the existing addresses. In either case, however, the relief sought is a patch that would resolve the position of Tulip Trading Limited alone. So if, well, I suppose if a patch was implemented, would that mean that it would generate new private keys? Or do we not know the answer? How would it work? Is, is what he's saying correct? I mean, I don't know the technical design around it. Um, I believe there probably would be new private keys issued. I think that's, you know, if you want, the, the, the sense to me would be to force a transaction from those addresses or write, you know, because remember the, the the blockchain is a register of ownership, record of ownership, right? So yeah. you could write a new register that says this Bitcoin is now owned by this private key, effectively, you know, I'm oversimplifying massively. And I'm sure yeah, uh, anybody yeah. with a computer science background will be jumping up and down and throwing, you know, their device through the window. But effectively, that's what you could do. You could say, okay, uh, we're going to amend the ledger and like cross out the former name and write, you know, uh, Tulip Trading next to this thing, and we can apply yeah. that as a patch. And then that could be under their control. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's it's possible to do it. Then, yeah, you know, whether or not they should needs to be decided well, on whether or not they can prove that he owned the money in the first place um that's the the more difficult question and i think that's where you know it's very very murky so you know can it be done yes it probably can um i also think as well when dr wright talks about this stuff it, it, as i said before you know he's not an idiot he's, he's a clever man and he does understand some things yeah. around blockchain to you know he does understand how technology works um he almost certainly knows that it's technically feasible um yeah. You know, and he has the qualification to, you know, the intellectual chops to back that up. I always thought that without the private key, that the funds were then locked and you couldn't go around making uh, unilateral changes to the blockchain for an individual like this. Um, but it seems as though technically you can. Um, so it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting technological wise. And I guess his case would be to have to get some very, very smart expert evidence in some sort of third party or or, or uh, maybe sort of simplify to some extent his own understanding so that a judge would be able to understand all this. But then the other issue would be is how do you control it? And we go back to this idea of consensus. So let's yeah. say the core developers um, are, you know, ordered to apply this patch. Um, what if the miners don't bother? um who you who are you then going to go for if you can't convince or 51 percent of the mining power doesn't adopt the changes that you want then it doesn't go through or oh, it, it can go through but it'll be a it'll be a fork well i think we're going to come to that because that's that's one of the key points as to what would happen if people were forced but i think at this juncture, it's, it's just worth considering actually what the defendants in, uh, are saying in response. So they're saying, and as per the judgment, the judgment says, um, and this is the first instance um, uh, judgment, it says, any change that they were able to propose to the address Tulip Trading Limited's complaint would be ineffective because miners would refuse to run it and instead would continue to run earlier versions of the software. What Tulip Trading Limited sought went against the core values of Bitcoin as a concept. 
A disagreement could lead to a fork in the networks, resulting in the creation of additional networks rather than a resolution of the issue. The, fifth, the 15th and 16th defendants also claim that if they attended to make the changes sought to the uh, BCH-ABC network, it would have a severely detrimental effect on their reputations and participants would refuse to adopt them. I can see in the corner of my eye, I was reading that, there's lots of nodding. So the question is, is this right? It'll be useful to explain what a fork is. Would it create a new blockchain, et cetera? Let's yeah, I mean, this, and, and this is exactly it. So I think I first want to talk about is reputation. I think that's like the, yeah. the one thing that stands out to me is they say our reputation will be ruined. And I sort of feel for them as a, on a human level, but in reality, it's like, just because you don't like Craig Wright, just because you don't like Dr. Wright and what he says and who he was, doesn't mean that you can sort of say, you know, stake your whole company based on doing something for him. Do you know what I mean if I mm -hmm. if I buy him dinner if he's hungry it doesn't make me a you know a conspirator it just makes me a decent person maybe if he's hungry um, right. I, I I kind of you know feel that 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 that's kind of a little bit ego grand and ego but I, you know it would have potentially a big impact on their clients as well potentially um, but just to circle back then what is a fork well this is what happens when there isn't consensus um so a fork happens when the underlying protocol is changed in such a way that it isn't compatible anymore with the previous versions right so like a fundamental change in the blockchain as in the records change really like dramatically or a particular technology does um so they've happened in the past to add like new features like for scalability or security vulnerabilities like we talked about in that mm -hmm. Wall Street Journal article um but when there isn't consensus between the miners, the people who are responsible for securing the network, um, the network effectively splits into two parts. And that's when you get a fork. It's, an idea of, it's broken into different areas. And we've had several of them. Um, we've had, uh, as I said, the Bitcoin to Bitcoin Cash fork. Yeah. Had the Bitcoin Cash to Bitcoin SV fork. We've had... Ethereum going from a proof of work model, which is the one I described previously uh, about, you know, computing to do a mathematical problem to a proof of stake model. And there's a fork there as well, because there wasn't consensus in how to go forwards. Um, and I can go on. There have been other forks, but, you know, across the major blockchains that people probably know, these are the ones that, you know, you'll hear at. And even yeah. in the time of that Ethereum DAO hack back in 2016, there was a fork then because you know the old blockchain still exists like it's still there and i don't know if anyone's still you know mining it particularly and leaving it there i don't think there is um but the new one is a fork from that point when the hack took place so yeah that's what a fork is um there are two types of forks though there is a hard fork which is not backwards compatible so anyone who's not running the new version of the software won't be able to interact or participate in the network anymore. And that's, I think, what the miners are saying is that if we do this, it will be a hard fork and anybody who's not running this network anymore won't be able to interact with us because we won't let it happen. Whereas a soft fork is, you know, it is backwards compatible, which means it doesn't really change too much, um, but it's still a fork nonetheless. Um, so why would it create a fork then? Is it because... Um, the rules, the new rules, i.e. the return of the assets, or at least putting them at a, at a new address and providing new private keys, would be so fundamentally different to the previous ledger that it would create a new system and therefore undermine the value of Bitcoin or, 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 or blockchains as a tech? I mean, I think the biggest change in thing wouldn't necessarily be like it changing much about the technology i think it would be whether or not it was picked up by those who are responsible for it like the validators and the miners like whether or not they mm -hmm. actually wanted to do it in the first place and you know they're not you know they're not necessarily subject to the same law um they can be anywhere they may not they may be completely unknown like uh, whether or not they do it is 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 sort of up to them there is um you know, there are there are other precedents in this in terms of like there are some upgrades that have happened to Bitcoin, like Taproot, for example, which was a security and privacy update to Bitcoin, which hasn't been rolled out across all the nodes and minings uh, in the thing. But it does exist. Right. And some nodes do it and some nodes don't do it. Um, 
you know, so there are still other forks that have happened that haven't been picked up by everybody that still don't affect the chain fundamentally. But I think because of the the emotional chargedness of this whole situation and people's feelings towards Dr. Wright, um, you know, they, they will be fairly reluctant, I would suggest, which is probably, again, why he's taken this to court, because they need to be compelled to comply. Um, yeah, it seems as though there's an issue here in, in personality clash. And I guess... To some extent, that can be dealt with um, under the sort of legal considerations of whether something should be done. But it seems on the face of it that there is sort of two sides of this coin that they, it could be done technically, but actually it would cause so much of an issue for the fundamental uh, software for the Bitcoin blockchain and for those developers as a whole uh, on the basis that their reputations may be ruined, they may not be trusted anymore, and ultimately, and I think um, this is a point that we, we will consider a little bit later, but it may well be that ultimately in doing so, um, it will create a precedent that it would allow individuals to therefore write to the developers and, and sort of require them to rubber stamp whatever they want, which again, undermines to some extent the, the decentralized nature or proposed decentralized nature of, of the whole thing. Which brings us on to sort of my next question, which is, do you agree that the maintenance of the Bitcoin software is is decentralized? And I ask that because, and I, you know, I make reference to the article that um, I spoke about earlier. The article says, um, on, it notes on Jack Dorsey, who founded Twitter. It says, and I quote, he also set up a legal fund in early 2022 to help developers, developers fend off potential litigation, such as a suit in the UK by a man seeking their assistance in recovering Bitcoin, allegedly stolen from him, end quote. So does the circumstance put developers in a difficult position in that they do not want to be seen with, in, in sort of meddling with the ledger for any individual and yet it being sponsored by paid for via grants to maintain the blockchain by certain individuals including to protect certain interests in the form of a litigation fund they're sort of in this difficult position aren't they yeah um yeah. so i guess the, the sort of like the the different what we're trying to get down to here is how decentralized is the decision making in crypto um yes <laughs> and difficult one i appreciate <laughs> so Ultimately, somebody has to press go, like someone has to press return on the change before it's applied. So is that person who does that the one who made the decision or how far back do you need to go, you know, to understand it? And, you know, is it the person who proposed the change that's responsible? Is it the people who voted in favor of the change who are responsible? I think it's it's a very, very difficult one. Um, and to be honest with you, because it's, I wouldn't say decentralized because it's democratized because you rely on you know the consensus of a majority to do something and the majority is not as small I mean that's what I think the argument of Dr Wright is that it is a small majority mm -hmm. and to be fair to the Wall Street Journal article it does indicate that's the case too like we're not talking of yeah. you know many hundreds of thousands of people we're talking you know maybe tens of hundreds of people perhaps who are responsible for this, then yeah, maybe he's got a point to make, which is it's not as decentralized as you think it is. And I think that's fair in its assertion. Um, but ultimately, the people who are responsible for this, um, they, they aren't necessarily motivated, um, I don't think, if, by, hold on a second. Let me go back slightly. Is uh, I think the other question is: uh, Is there such thing as altruism for a developer of this? Like, is there any altruism at all? Like, and you can get incredibly cynical um, in these requirements. For me, the developers, just like anybody else in this industry, myself included, um, we rely on being seen as impartial and a better alternative and fairer than existing protocols like you know traditional finance it's a big rival to yes, it yeah. so if we don't if, if, if we do start to start to play these games with they question our integrity and if they question our integrity the whole value proposition of what we're doing falls away um so i think for the people who are developing it they have to be seen to be as independent as possible of external influences but there's no such thing as completely externally independent 
because ultimately, you know, they are su subsidized in part by people who want to make this thing happen. They themselves believe in their technology. They're acting in their best interests because that's what they want. Yes. You know, yeah. it's not completely, I don't think it's, you know, black and white in that, you know, they only act completely responsibly. Yeah, I'm sure they've, you know, if it pays your bills, you're going to do the job, aren't you? I mean, Absolutely. And I think there's 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 a there's an issue here, right? Because the 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 development of Bitcoin on the basis that let's just say when it was put out into the world, it was completely decentralized. But of course, there are external factors in the world that means that for it to interact with people's computers, an external feature, so to speak, it needs to have someone to allow it to make that interaction. So to some extent, there needs to be, because of human external factors, there needs to be someone or a group of people who maintain that decentralized idea, protocol, whatever it may be. That's my understanding of it. And I, it's very, very difficult to, under, I, I suppose, articulate how that operates at this stage. And I guess that's, to some extent, what uh, the defense and the claimants need to consider. And that sort of brings me on to the next question, really, which is, do you think the parties will have a difficult time time obtaining the the necessary information to prove their case? Um, yeah. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> the answer may just be yeah. I mean, it's it's so yeah, so difficult, right? Because he's going to have to prove, as you say, right, ownership in the first place, and then that this can be done, and there's going to have to be real detail, right, into into what that looks like. And then there's going to have to be a discussion of outside of whether it should be done, how it's implemented, jurisdictional issues on how you force people to do it if they're outside of the jurisdiction, et cetera, et cetera. But in your perspective, what sort of information are they going to need? Can it even be obtained? So I think the main one is, you know, does do, there are two parts to this thing. One of them is, will there be a judgment on whether or not people have to apply a patch or can be compelled to if this happens. And I'm really interested to hear what happens there. That, that's got a huge, you know, I'll call it political implications for Bitcoin mm -hmm. particularly. And again, yeah. let's not forget, it's, it's only Bitcoin that's really getting hit in the face with this. It's, it's not necessarily affecting Ethereum or other networks, um, mm -hmm. although there is a cascading effect because they are often symbiotic. So I, I really look forward yeah. to that. The second one is proving that something is yours in cryptocurrency is meant to be easy. Like it's supposed to be the easiest thing to do. And like I think, yeah. you know, you guys work in asset recovery um, and that sort of liquidation. And us, we do tracing of cryptocurrency. We really mm -hmm. are desperate to hear what standard of proof is required to make this happen. Because if it's then said, okay, to prove that somebody has had money stolen from them, they need to provide this type of evidence. That would be absolutely a game changer because, you know, we can then quite happily say, right, we've got a client, they've lost this much money, we've followed it around, it's gone to this address, it was then sent to this exchange or this particular service provider, this belonged to them, and this is how we prove that it was theirs to begin with, like is so helpful for us to sort of take that case forward and really, you know, change some of the things that go around it. Because there is a great myth around cryptocurrency, which is it's untraceable, which is not true apart from certain types. Which The very opposite, yeah. Very, very traceable. Um, the other one is it can't be recovered and slightly more difficult to recover perhaps than, um, you know, a physical asset. Like you can't go and put a padlock on it or, you know, change the locks or whatever else. But certainly you can identify where it is and you can, you know, you can say seize it. That's that, you know, there are powers to do those things um, that are existent already in some legal frameworks. Um, well, certainly here you can do that. One hundred percent in this jurisdiction, there is the ability to claim to show that crypto assets are property, to show ownership, um, tracing or following um, via uh, legal tracing or equitable tracing has been considered, um, ring fencing um, those assets um, in foreign jurisdictions and then recovering those assets have, have now all been done. Um, so there is certainly a, a roadmap to do that, but this is sort of a new, a new consideration, a new method to do that, that sort of, to some extent, f seeks to fly in the face of the fundamental principles of um, I suppose, Bitcoin or at least of, of blockchain decentralized tech. 
Um, I mean, one of the big implications here, Matt, I think as well, something we didn't cover so much is if this hmm. works, um, one of the examples is Quadriga CX, right? The famous uh, North American cryptocurrency exchange whose founder, uh, a guy called Mr. Jared Cotton, um, disappeared along with access to all of the cryptocurrency uh, contained within it with the, uh, the mm -hmm. private keys because he kept the you know the passphrase or whatever else in his head um and now all this money's been sat there and nobody can get it and people have lost a load of cash um yeah. you know so there is some probably other people in corners of the internet who are thinking okay maybe if he doesn't get it right um you know it maybe if dr wright's case isn't successful um, you know, in the end of the day, we don't care. But if the judge does say that they can be compelled to do this, if there is a judgment on that specific issue, I think there'll be plenty of people who've lost money and plenty of people who um, have been the victim of crime looking to try and get something out of this. Uh, and, you know, I, d I do wonder about um, the, you know, th there's a lot of discussion about cryptocurrency and one of the main uses of it is it's Im immutable, right? It's, a, yeah. it's an immutable register and this kind of says it's not immutable. Um, if you can just pass That's the it. point. Yes, exactly. That's, that's my feeling. I mean, when I, when I get cases whereby people write to me and say, you know, I've lost uh, Tether, for instance, well, that's sort of run, uh, at least to my mind, and maybe someone will correct me if I'm wrong, but to my mind, that's essentially run by a centralized entity. And on that basis, I can write to them and say, can you freeze this or here's some information, can you help? Because they are centralized. Whilst with Bitcoin, you can't write to anybody to do that, to do that on the basis that it's decentralized. But in this instance, the claimant is saying that there is enough centralization for someone who's lost their funds to seek a recourse that doesn't require necessarily asset tracing and what can be uh, a procedure which is labor intensive and can be quite costly to so just to write to the people who control it and say fix it for me yeah exactly and this is the exact precedent here is you know well can they fix it for you and you know i'm of the opinion that well can they and should they are different questions <laughs> exactly <laughs> right what you said yeah and, you know, just because you could doesn't mean you should have done. And then the other question is, then, yeah. which jurisdiction claims primacy over this? You know, does if it comes from a British court or an American court or a you know a Chinese court or you know an Emirati court, mm -hmm. like whose orders do you work to? Um, I don't think the Bitcoin developers have a legal association that would handle all these incoming case requests you know, and weigh the merits of it. And then what happens if you have a conflict? What if there are two people? What's to stop me, you know, from deciding that I own five addresses, fabricating a whole load of evidence to do that um, and submitting it to, you know, a, a legal counsel and getting them to run it through? Um, and then the change happening. Like, it's very, very difficult. Um, and again, I, I sort of find it hard to reconcile the things with this you know whereas in other property cases you might have you know like a you know you might have a land registry document or you might have something yeah. that shows proof of ownership here it's control of the private keys um yeah so if that standard isn't met if you haven't shown that you have the private keys or have a copy of them how, how can you prove that you had it and i feel that's one of the, the key flaws for unfortunately dr wright is if he has been the victim of a theft then they've really done a number on him um, because they've taken away the one thing potentially he could use to prove ownership, which is the private key. Um, yeah. And I, well, that's yeah, an interesting really point. Um, in terms of sort of one of the points you made there about, so it's almost about enforcement. If we think about it, if the claimant won, right, and uh, there was a judgment which, uh, and a, and a, an order compelling the developers, wherever they may be, to make the required patch, how would that work? Could it work? As you say, I guess it would have to be an order that would then be equivalent in whichever jurisdiction those developers are. If those developers could be identified at all, they would have to, I suppose, comply with it. They may seek to challenge it. Yeah. It may but just then, be too, it may just well be too difficult. Well, then also the other thing is, is that, you know, what happens if the developers Half of them agree, half of them you can't find. What mm -hmm. happens, though, if the developers agree to comply with the court's request to implement a patch, and then they don't? 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, and then the miners don't pick it up. Um, you know, and then on what time? Well, the miners change. Well, the miners change because I, I, the, the 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 judgment or, or the uh, the claim is designed to sue specific individuals. What happens if one of them drops out because they're just not a developer anymore and someone else takes it over and then they have that power? I mean, there's just it seems like the whole point may be frustrated just because of how difficult it is, not negating the fact that it, there's a claim in, in at least the mind of the claimant that shouldn't be precluded because things are difficult. But it may well be that even if the claimant does obtain a, a, a preferable judgment, that it's just impossible to enforce. Yeah, I, I think it's um, yeah, you're right. It does. I mean, again, the, the other part as well is it's. I wonder too that uh, you know, Doctor Wright is a strong advocate of his uh, own project, the Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, and mm-hmm. he is very active on social media um, in terms of how he describes other projects um mm-hmm. and their flaws and their developers and everyone else like he, he he's very very strongly critical of them um you know it it seems slightly at odds too is that if he says um you know you need to comply with my demand but also i'm the only person who you can go to because i'm the only true one like you know i i wonder um how, how it will play out for him and i think also for him too he's lost a lot of cases like yeah he, he's got a pretty low success rate in this endeavor which is you know some people use that indicative to sort of say well obviously everything he's doing is rubbish and they use it to sort of like say this is him you know being a fraud or whatever else but mm. you know in some cases i just feel like the proof just wasn't there for him so it you know i don't think people can make those claims so easily because in some cases just a case of well the judge didn't feel there was enough evidence to support what he was saying in the first place which is a loss but it's not the same as saying he's not do you know what i mean yeah so maybe lack of evidence it may be circumstance um but there's just there are lots of factors it seems from this conversation for him and it it could be possible but again it boils down to whether it should be done and that's outside of course of any of the the legal implications on duties um, etc. I mean, also, I, I wonder have... how he could. Um, sorry, Matt. I was going to say, I would wonder how also right. the court would feel about it and the impact of its decision. Because, you know, if you were to say to the court, okay, listen, the market capital market capitalization of Bitcoin at the moment is, let's say, you're know, nine hundred eighty million dollars or whatever else. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. application, uh, sorry, nine hundred million, nine hundred eighty billion dollars. Let's say the application of this patch would reduce it substantially from nine hundred eighty billion down to twelve. I, I can't imagine that kind of judgment would go unchallenged by all the other people who stood to lose a lot of money based on the back. Exactly. And that sort of brings me to my final question, which is, to my mind, when I, I, I've spoken to people about the operation of this, if there was a hard fork on the basis that um, this was carried out, a new blockchain would be created is that's my understanding but it may well be that on that basis that specific blockchain let's call it tulip blockchain the assets on that would be worthless and it may well be that the 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 non-forked version just continues so you've got an individual blockchain that only tulip cares about where the assets within are essentially worth zero because no one is maintaining it and the whole exercise has been a complete waste of time yeah I mean, you can call it BTC TP. I don't know. Yeah, whatever it is, right? It's a it's a new asset. It's a it's a kind of Bitcoin on a brand new blockchain, but no one's maintaining it. No one cares about it because it only benefits the claimant. And then the question then is that, yeah, what's the claimant's goal here? Like, yeah. it, uh, I think like if we take it at face value and say everything is correct, and I. I I think the claimant's motive is to, you know, he's been a victim of crime and he wants you know, restitution. He wants some money back from it. Um, then if he was to do this, he wouldn't get any money back or he would get a significantly less amount of money. And, you know, I've never been confronted with the opportunity to be given three billion pounds. And I'm more than open if anyone's listening to donate me three billion. I'll take it yeah. off your hands tomorrow. Um, but. You know, for him to sort of, if I would be pretty galled if someone said, okay, we're going to do this, but it's going to reduce, but by doing this, the economic impact of doing it will reduce what you have down to, 
you know, a couple of hundred thousand pounds potentially because of this. I mean, there are other economic arguments about it. Like, would it devalue completely because of this has happened? Um, there's maybe a speculation there that, you know, our expectation or our assumption is, is that by doing this, the value would fall drastically um, because of what happened. But it may still be worth, you know, a couple of hundred million or something like that, potentially, which is potentially worth the investment. Yeah, there's the, that's exactly right. There's the moral victory. Yes, I've got these guys. I've got the developers to do it. But... It just seems to my mind, and I'm very happy to be wrong on this or proven wrong, but no one would be maintaining that forked blockchain. It would be to some extent a, a different asset. And whether people want to buy Bitcoin Tulip or not is a, because he's saying, oh, it's worth billions. He's got to sell them to convert it into pounds if he wants to go and, and do that. It's got to be a market for it. He would then argue that the chain that would pick it up and say maintained is his own, mm -hmm. Bitcoin SV. So then he would he would maintain his own. He would be the, the the maintainers, as that article referenced earlier. He would take over, maintain this blockchain, and all the other ones could wither and die, but they would remain the only one that's left because they had all the other things. And that's that's I, I don't think that's what people who like Bitcoin want. Let's be honest. I think it's also not what. I think most people who want finance one, there's like one company responsible for the whole... Yeah, monopolies, the whole, it's the whole argument against what's been going on. But surely the other developers, the other developers you're trying to sue would continue with the original, I say original, the non-Tulip blockchain, and you'd have two. If they were bombarded with legal action... Um, yeah, makes it worth they work? it. They already sound very stressed as it is, so I, I can't imagine this is an incentive to keep working. Um, you know, quite the opposite. And I think that's... You know, that's kind of the sad thing is that it would he would be able to monopolize the market and there would just be, you know, the company with which he's a chief scientist, uh, you know, N-Chain working on this mm -hmm. and nobody else. And that would be the last instance remaining of it. But it does raise some fairly big, deep soul searching questions about cryptocurrency and decentralized stuff. I think it's deeper than that as well. It talks about open source is that, you yeah. know, the MIT license, uh, you know, the idea that they sold without warranty. Um, you know, it might work with a piece of software. Like, you know, if I download Linux operating system for Ubuntu and I don't pay a penny for it, if it crashes my computer, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of on me. And if I lose all of my data, it's what you, you use Linux Ubuntu, it's the impact of me having that happen might not be, I mean, it could be if it's like I'm a data center and it has a major flaw. But um, the impact to me as an individual is fairly limited. Whereas if I've lost three billion pounds, is that, and I think, the other thing is a lot of other cases will be watching this too about open source and where there's opportunity to extend litigation against people who are doing projects like this kind of uh, thing. Uh, because again, you know, open source people rely on grants. It's kind of like university research um, or anything else that's more, you know, uh, less directed or let, not for profit. You know, it, it basically says, you know, how, how, you know, why would I bother in the first place? We'll just stop writing code. We'll shut down GitHub because someone's going to sue me if their project breaks. Um, and that would be, you know, maybe that's a, a far too long reach extraction of this kind of activity. Um, you know, and I don't want to be slippery slope and, oh, you know, today it's going to be, a, you know, this little thing and tomorrow it's going to be something massive. You know, we used to have a phrase in the military, you know, say, like, if you leave a pocket, a pocket, leaving your pockets undone is like a cardinal sin. And if you leave a pocket undone in camp, then you've left the a pouch open in the in the field and then if you're on a nuclear submarine you've left the hatch open and it's like just mm -hmm. because you left one pocket open once and like literally you've destroyed the whole of humanity uh, because of this kind of thing i don't see it being entirely the same way but i do think it's going to make people think twice and that and if they aren't already doing so as in like am i going to hear more of these things yeah, it essentially opens the floodgates for liability for developers. And I think that's one of the fundamental questions in this. That's why Jack Dorsey's, you know, put a litigation fund together to fight this. I think it all boils down as, and I think we've said, a f you know, a few times in this, could it be done? It appears so at a technical level. Should it be done? And what the economic, political implications of, if it is done, what they are, it's to be determined. My personal view is that, you know, it, 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 it creates too much of a liability and will actually hinder innovation. But uh, we'll probably find out um, what the courts think of this um, in the future years. We'll keep an eye on it. 
Nick, unless you've got anything else, any other thoughts, you've, I'm, I'm very aware that you've given me a huge amount of your time and right. expertise, um, hugely appreciated. Um, so thank you very much for coming down. That's okay. No, go for it. The only thing I was going to leave on really is, is that, um, you know, <laughs> there's more than one blockchain here, right? And there is, mm. you know, there, there are not just Bitcoin and it's uh, forks anymore. There's Ethereum. There's Tron. There's other blockchains out there which may end up, if this went ahead, will be governed by the same set of rules. But I don't think they would have the same issue with devaluation that Bitcoin does because they're very different in how they approach the task. And you know, for anybody who uh, is from a cryptocurrency sort of standpoint uh, and says, "Well, you know, we don't want your regulation, we don't want your laws, we don't want your uh, protections." Um, I, I say to them is like you need to grow up because this is reality. Like you know, mm -hmm. and I take the example back is nobody cares about you know anything happening until it happens to them. Like if if your pension fund is linked to the price of Bitcoin and this happens and you have nothing left, like who do you complain to? Like you go and you seek you know counsel somewhere to try and get some sort of remedy and. For those who say, oh, well, we don't want rules, regulations, like financial Darwinism, it's your keys, your crypto, it gets lost, it's on you. Like, if you get hacked, it's your own fault. You should take better precautions. It's like, thanks very much. But you know what? When someone has a road accident and you lose half your family, you don't say you shouldn't be driving so fast. Like, mm. you don't do that kind of thing. And I really dislike this kind of um, uncaring, un antisocial kind of way of looking at cryptocurrency. What this case raises and how it goes is, perhaps something we need to have as a, a bigger discussion as a community, which is, okay, how do we help people who've been victims of like large scale fraud or large scale crime? How can we do something about this? And, you know, this technology is supposed to empower people and it's supposed to, you know, provide better access to financial products and services, which are more difficult at the moment. H how do we make this work rather than just say, well, I don't like Craig Wright because he says things I don't agree with. We're not, we're bigger than that. It, it, it's the way yeah. it is. It's a, as you say, it's a, a wider implication on socio-political economic points that I suppose in this instance shouldn't be limited um, to people's like, dislike, disdain, whatever the word may be of, of the claimant. But um, look, we'll see how this all progresses, but um, really appreciate your input. Thanks very much, Nick. Um, and as this progresses, maybe we'll have another chat. Absolutely, yeah, I'd love to stay in touch. This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins and music by Luke Carey. Thank you for listening and see you next time.